Hey, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today on LGBTQ&A, I'm talking to Jeffrey Marsh. We talk about the safe haven that the internet is for so many LGBTQ people, especially LGBTQ youth who don't have acceptance in their offline lives. Of course, there are pros and cons of that, which we discuss. And then Jeffrey is non-binary, and we talk about their gender and how that's been something that people have had to quote-unquote deal with all of their life and what that's been like for them. So all of that's coming up. If you enjoy the show, though, please text your friends. Text your friends, text your group chats, put us in an email. Spreading the word amongst your friends is one of the biggest ways you can help our show grow. So big, big, big thank you for that. And then as always, don't forget to check out our old home at After Buzz TV. They're the number one place for all your TV after show discussions. All right, without further ado, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is Jeffrey Marsh. So when I was walking over here, thinking about people's uncomfortability and hesitancy around gender non-conforming people, but specifically the use of they, them pronouns. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that gender non-conforming people have existed forever. That the words to describe your experience of gender are new, mm-hmm. but the experience is not, mm-hmm. right? Mm, that is correct. Is that the question? Because yes. Well, I bring yeah. that up. I think it's really important to say because to so many people, this feels like a really new thing that they're like, quote unquote, dealing with. Yeah, that that kind of attitude is pretty pervasive. And for my whole life, I've been someone that people have dealt with in various ways. And it used to be personal for me. I used to feel like, well, that's my fault somehow. And when I was able to discover, oh, oh, yes, people need to deal with me and I can help them to deal with me, but I can never deal with me for them. It's something they need to go through. And I can assist and I can help and I can be open and I can be happy in the meantime, but it's going to be a process that they'll go through take five minutes or it'll take five years. That sounds like a surprisingly freeing realization. Absolutely. Absolutely. It has to do with someone else's opinion of me having nothing to do with me. And going back to these being new words, do you remember when you found the word genderqueer or non-binary? You know, I was famous already when I found it. Isn't that interesting? I was known on Vine for making videos. I would have facial hair and makeup and I would tell people how wonderful they are. And the kids the LGBTQ kids were writing to me and saying, what's your pronoun? How do you identify? And I was like, uh, Google, 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 right? These were very early days and the kids were a step ahead. And I went to Tumblr to find out what they were talking about. And I was like, that's me. So this younger generation taught me about myself. And now I can in turn, hopefully inspire other people. That's fascinating because you were presenting in gender nonconforming ways, and yet there was a learning Correct. curve in how you described your own experience. Correct. Well, you talked about that same learning curve throughout history of humanity, and it was the same thing in miniature in my life. Wow. But how long ago was that? That was six, seven, eight years ago. And so then I... I then became, because of the kids and that realization and that um, assistance from the kids, 
they don't like to be called kids, from the young adults of the social media world, I became one of the first professionals to be out and using they, them pronouns and to be identified as non-binary. And And even though you were always non-binary, the word is new, but did claiming that word change your expression or experience of gender? Of course. It's like, and now I do this kind of work. So I go into schools and I talk to them about labels and the sort of pros of labels, P-R-O-S, pro of labels, is that they help you feel respected, help you feel like you finally have a place. And there are cons too, which we can talk about if you want. Yeah, I think uh, that's exactly how I describe them as well, pros and cons. And I think the pro is, oh, there's people like me. There's a name for this I'm valid. Yeah. I'm not alone in this. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, what would you say the cons are for people? I think the biggest con that everyone encounters is that a label sticks you to a point which may or may not be relevant later on, which is fine, but it's just something to be aware of that a label automatically just creates a box for you to be in. Yes. And I would say that that box is a con, comma, but it becomes a pro when we're fighting for public acceptance and laws to be passed. Correct. We need these labels. Correct. We were talking about IDs before you got here. Your New York ID, I believe, doesn't have non-binary or an X on it. Correct. Statewide driver's licenses have to be M or F. But there's something called the NYC ID, which I worship and love, and it has no gender marker whatever on it. None. They don't consider that to be an important enough bit of information about someone to be on their ID. That's very progressive. Isn't it? <laughs> so does that cause stress using your government-issued ID? Like, do you want to say something else? Absolutely. I was like, uh, when I first got my NYC ID, I was flying to a school to give a speech, and I tried to use my NYC ID with TSA, and they can't accept it. It has to be statewide. So it was like, um, just like a, a, a heavy heart when I had to go back into my wallet and be like, oh, well, here's my driver's license that says M, which is not at all the story of who I am. Yeah. And something that amazes me about the non-binary experience specifically from Mm -hmm. people who are not young today wow that sounds really offensive (laughs) (laughs) in my day we had no electricity let's say from our generation Uh something that amazes me about your experience is that kids today they they have non-binary role models and they can point to things if they feel like that but you were able to point to uh very few things in media and there's this lack of uh, public awareness about gender, and yet you still were able to claim and present in like genderqueer ways. Oh, absolutely. You mean before there was language for it culturally? Yeah. To say I'm not male, I'm not absolutely. female, to know that you had that choice. Absolutely. And there was a time when I was like 13, 14, the only thing I had was really Christine Jorgensen and some glimpses in my small Pennsylvania town of RuPaul. And so it was it was a very limited palette. And I thought, well, I'm going to, I guess I'm going to get up and I'm going to grow up and have surgery at some point. I'm going to be a transgender woman. And to find out through other icons, eh, Kate Bornstein, for example, you know, that you there are lots of options out there for who we are. Which is incredibly exciting. I know. And then to turn around and be able to teach that same lesson to other people is the most fulfilling way to spend a life for me. 
Yeah. When we talk about dysphoria, we usually mm-hmm. talk about it within a binary experience. Correct. Do you experience dysphoria? It's interesting. Yes, and also no. So I've been Buddhist for about 20 years, and I've gone through this meditative journey to accept uh, the present moment. And so my body is a certain way in the present moment, and I love my body. I love everything about it. I love being in this body. And I know that's not true for everyone, and I would never encourage anyone to, you know, quote unquote, try to get to that same place that I got to. That's just where I am, is that I love this form. And there are days when I sure wish things could be different, but not in a permanent way, but just in a fluid way that my body would express that. And maybe I'll come up with something that I'll do at some point (laughs) that'll reflect that. But for now, I feel right at home. In finding Buddhism, how did you find that? I was in a shop called the Garland of Letters, which is in Philadelphia. It's a bookshop. And they are really, really, even though it's in Philly, it's very, very West Coast, California kind of vibe. There's dream catchers on the wall and they sell crystals. And I always was drawn to that place even before I found found Buddhism. But I walked in one day about 20 years ago and looked across the store and saw a book cover with hand lettering. And it's the book was called There Is Nothing Wrong With You. And my mind went, oh, yeah, right. I know what's wrong with me. This, 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 and this, right? Mostly being queer is wrong with me. But as my mind was thinking that, my feet were already moving across the bookstore, right? My body had an understanding that we wanted to check that book out. We wanted to see what was up. And so I was there standing in front of the book, picked it up started to look through it. It was written by a woman named Sherry Huber, who runs a monastery in California. And I started going on retreats, meditating with them. I went and lived at the monastery for a while. Wow. Here I am today. What does Buddhism have to say about gender nonconformity? <laughs> Buddhism, ha- the, it's, it's so funny because the way that we practice it, it's not incompatible. It's not against anything in life. So, I I happen to be of a Soto Zen tradition, which is a Japanese style, but it practiced in the West with a Western teacher. And it goes with everything. It goes with Christianity. It goes with being gender nonconforming. It goes with being cisgender heterosexual. It goes with every single thing you could think of. It is a way of approaching life and being here that accepts all things. There's a Buddhist hero named Kuan Yin who morphs into all these different forms to help people end their suffering. So is like a grandma and then is like a dog and then is like whatever is needed to help people. And therefore is also a non-binary person. Becomes man, becomes woman, becomes whatever is needed in the moment. And so there's this ancient tradition of that kind of gender play in Buddhism. And I think that that kind of goes to our earlier conversation about the history of gender nonconformity, how there's a lot of cultures like South exactly. Asian cultures and Hawaiian culture that honors it and has gods that change genders. And Correct. It's nothing foreign to pop culture even, you know. For throughout history. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. You are this person who's very warm and projects confidence and there's a life about you. Did you learn that in Buddhism or Go is that on. an innate to you? 
It was learned. I grew up in a place and in a time where I was taught such complete, utter, devastating self-hatred. I was constantly policing myself. I turned, I wasn't successful, but I turned to suicide at one point because the self-hate was so heavy and deep. And it got so desperate that I eventually moved to a monastery where you're silent all the time to be able to deal with this crushing hatred that was inside who I am and that I was taught by society, mainly for being queer. So for people who are on that earlier side of your path, the Mm self-hatred, to get to where you are now, that's a big question. So I want to simplify it and say, like, where do they begin? The first baby step is to learn that you are deserving of giving up that self-hate. If you don't do that first, if you don't begin to see yourself from the outside, is another way to say it, if you don't do that step first, you're just going to fold giving up self-hate into the self-hate system. It's going to be like, I'm not doing this well enough. I still hate myself. I'm stupid. There must be something wrong with me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And just, just do your best to start to see yourself as someone who's worthy. That's step number one. The monastery, how long were you there for? As I said, I've been practicing for about 20 years, and it, I've been there various times and been on retreat at least once a year during those 20 years, and have stayed longer and shorter throughout the time. So living okay. there for months at a time. or So I guess I'm thinking about your early experience there, your first time going into a monastery. I would have a lot of expectations and assumptions of what would happen. How did those assumptions that you had compare to the reality of the monastery? It's interesting because part of what happens when you go there is a very inward focus. I mean, not shocking, but it felt like, so one of the things I mentioned is that there's silence. And when I first went there, the silence felt like a punishment. Like there's, there is something wrong with me. I'm being punished. I'm being, uh, you know, put in the corner and being separated from other people. And so it was basically everything about the spiritual path just got folded into the self-hate, which one would expect if one's been trained into self-hate for such a long time. Yeah. And then I eventually came to see, well, maybe that's not the best way to live one's life. And that is a like simplified version. I have to assume it was quite a lot of struggle. <laughs> 20 <right>? years. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. A lot of struggle and a lot of love and light as well. It's that sort of holistic, you know, another image is the yin and the yang, right? It's that sort of mishmash of everything that goes on in life. And, you know, everything that goes on in my gender, it's all the same metaphor. And everything you're saying about looking inward and silence and Zen, I kind of want to draw a line to your upbringing on a rural farm because sure. to me it's a lot of hard work but it's did you also... google me before this oh i read your book jeffrey <laughs> <laughs> um, i'm always impressed for some reason oh. but yes great <laughs> um and to me it's uh, living on a farm is hard work but there's a zen about that and possibly like a, a silence D- did you yep. experience that growing up yeah i actually had a reckoning with mom 
about this very subject because she felt guilty and upset that she had chosen to live in the country and therefore had visited upon me a really isolated experience. Meaning, I grew up in a place where there were no other out queer people. And it was me and the trees, me and the barn. (laughs) Not even me and my parents, not even me and my siblings. Nobody really understood the queer experience or knew what to do with me. And, we, you know, we can talk more in depth about it, but everyone around me was trying to get me not to be me when I was a kid. And once I wrote the book and started talking publicly about that, mom eventually came to me and said, that's my fault, isn't it? I wanted to live in York County, Pennsylvania. They don't live there anymore, you know, but that's where I grew up. I wanted to live there, and so it's my fault that you had no one when you were growing up. And I had to say, much like what you're implying, Mom, those trees became my friends. That farm was self-reliance for me. That isolation meant I became imaginative and creative in my inner life. Yes, there were times when it felt awful and lonely and no one understood me and And there were times when I felt like I'm the only one on earth, but it also taught me the really valuable lesson to be still with myself and be okay with that. I think that is increasingly more difficult, not just for us city folk, but for everyone. And I blame cell phones because I think that the first, uh, the beginning of learning to love yourself. And I I would make that, I would actually say that your work in your book and everything you do is not directly about gender. It's about getting you to love yourself Correct. no matter who you are. And gender is a part of that. But it's not a metaphor. The whole story. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that getting to know yourself, you have to be alone with yourself. And we are never alone with our phones. <laughs> and it is my new obsession. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me bring another nuance to yeah. that. Because I notice a lot of people down on the youths for being cell phone addicted. It's become a, sort of a trend among our generation. That's how you said it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I actually think I'm down yeah. on, um, on every age, actually. Oh, okay, great. Addiction. <laughs> Including myself. Well, there's this other side to it that I get contacted on a daily basis by people who have only found LGBTQ acceptance through their phone, through me and my videos. But that only happened because I'm on their cell phone. So they're just like me growing up in this isolated place and their cell phone's their only way out. But when you go to the monastery and you're sitting in meditation, you don't have your, you know, Twitter feed in front of you. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. And I think so it really is both things. For these rural kids, it's actually life saving to have someone like you on their phone. But I also think that when like the research shows that our cell phones are like uh, stopping us from or stopping our build ability to have deep thoughts, yes. to uh, have a memory for certain things. Mm-hmm. And it is when you're alone, when you check in with yourself, how do I feel about this person, this thing that happened, about my place in life? And I think that because we're always on our phones, it we are not checking in with ourselves. Sure. And it's also a double-edged sword. Um, yes. So someone, an LGBTQ uh, young adult in 
somewhere that's not a major city where they have a support system. They see my video, but it's on a platform where haters also have direct access to them. So you have maybe a private profile, but if your profile is public, the haters are going to come after you. And even if that never happens, they see the comments on my video, right? And it's easy for them to imprint me onto themselves and take whatever haters saying to me personally for them. So it's very, I think LGBTQ people have to grow up extra fast. And that's part of it. It's a great way to put it. For the people that reach out to you, you've done this for a a long enough time to see trends. Do Mm -hmm. you see a change in what people are concerned about today versus seven, eight years ago? Yeah, well, give me some parameters. Concerned who and um, I think I'm specifically thinking about the gender nonconforming young mm-hmm. people that reach out to you mm-hmm. and say that you're the only one they know in the media mm-hmm. or your videos are so important. Asia K. Dillon's out there, too. Yeah. And, and Jacob. Jacob. Tomorrow. Yeah, of course. And Alok Vate Menon. There's right. many people in terms of like a day to day basis. I think that like it's that's like changing for the youth. I want to say where gender nonconformity is rampant. <laughs> <laughs> And I wonder if you see that and like hearing from people like, oh, there's more people like me in my school, let alone online. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I do. And that, again, like so many things we've talked about is a double edged sword because the people we've talked about. So Asia is on a show that's on billions. And that's a bit of an exception. But the rest of us have become famous in sort of illegitimate ways. And I don't mean that as like a self haty kind of way to put it. I just mean we are famous because we have a social following and our followers love us, but we have yet to be like on The View or in places or in a major motion picture, right? In places where society at large has told us that we are part of the conversation. And so kids see work like mine on the internet and they love it and they know someone's like them but they also write to me about how there's not how aunt jean doesn't know about it you know how grandma doesn't know about it and you're using asia kate dillon as an example that's on this uh private network uh what do we call it correct yeah you have to pay for the app and you have to pay for the streaming and it's a fairly adult tv show Absolutely it is. Yeah. And I I actually, it's wonderful you, you say that because I, for glad, I interviewed Asia and they were wonderful. It was a wonderful interview. And, you know, it was interesting to see the kids' responses because you could see that their parents don't let them watch that show because it is really like adult themes. And so we're, I, I want to do a show sometime that's for, you know, everyone. For the Aunt Jeans of the world, the grandmas, and and the young adults. And, and saying, you want to do a show together? I would love to. Okay. Jeffrey's. Jeffrey Jeffrey's. Jeffrey M's. In saying that you you and other prominent non-binary people have become famous on untraditional platforms. Untraditional is better. Uh, what did you? <laughs> I said illegitimate, oh. but it's more like, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's not the seal of approval is what I meant. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're never going to win an Oscar for a Vine video. And I don't mean that rudely. It's just a fact. No, it's correct. (laughs) I will win an Oscar. Just not for that. I want that for you. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. So are you saying that people are watching you and Jacob and Alok on these platforms where you can also see the the number of followers you have and that they Mm. think that I need to be Instagram famous or Twitter famous in order to have like legitimacy in life in general? I think human beings do that. 
And especially when you're a young person, I guess you're susceptible to it. But it's not, um, I haven't talked to Jacob or Alok about this, but I've never bought followers, for example. So I don't have like 10 million, like some social stars do, you know? And I'm not saying everyone with 10 million has, has, has done that. But it's, there are ways to sort of fake the numbers. And I think kids are really wise to that. So they see us. And what I try to cultivate is a relationship of authenticity only. And it always, always, always comes back to happiness and gratitude, expressing myself, how to be you, right? It's always that theme for me. To bring our whole conversation back full circle, that's what I get the most messages about. Dear Jeffrey, you are queer and happy. How did you do that? That makes me so sad. That people, that, that, <laughs> no, it's great news, no, I No, think. it makes me incredibly sad that people think they can't mm. be both. Of course, we're still living in that it spot. May, yeah, and it's um, it's amazing that you are that example for people, mm. but I hate that these people uh, uh, have one example. You know, like, let's talk to a straight young person and ask how many... I think Jacob's many... pretty happy. Elok's pretty yeah. happy. It's, no, and I'm making a generalization, example, but... Yeah. but... If you ask a straight 13-year-old, hey, do you, how many examples of adults that are happy and straight can you think of? They would lose fingers. Well, because they're counting on the fingers, sure. not to cut it off. Right. Has <laughs> <laughs> my metaphor working? Um, you know what I'm saying? They, it's limitless. Yes. Yep. Yep. I, I mean, and I think that you are, to compare you to other out uh, non-binary people in the media, Jake Benelog write fairly often about their troubles in terms of dating. And you have a partner of how many years? Eight years. Eight. I think it's like great for people to see this non-binary person is happy and in a relationship. Absolutely. And we love each other very much. We're fiancés, as a matter of fact. I didn't know that. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. When did that happen? I need a coffee maker and a bread machine. Uh, You're doing it for the registry. <laughs> of course. You know, planning these things. Whew. Who asked Whew. who? I proposed to him in a church in Italy. Wow. That Would is... you like to hear more about that? I... Yeah. <laughs> My partner is uh, works at the Met Museum. And so researches, as part of his job, Italian Renaissance art. So we were in Italy on a trip for just that. And we wanted to go see his favorite painting in the world. And I surprised him in, in front of his favorite Caravaggio in Italy. I gave him a gift, actually, of a necktie, a beautiful necktie. And tucked in the necktie was a note saying, will you marry me? Wow. But anyway, to your point, I got a wonderful quote-unquote normal happy romantic life and i'm also you know buddhist style i'm a happy person and i'm queer yeah it is possible it can happen and i really think like it's so important to actually say the words that trans people are able to have healthy sex lives well they're actually able to have Absolutely. unhealthy sex lives too. sure i mean they're able to you know, be people is the thing yeah, yeah. i think that we're we know about the over-sexualization and fetishization of trans people. And so we've pulled mm -hmm. back on that when we're not talking about, you know, like dating them. Mm -hmm. You used uh, he pronouns for your partner. Yes. He's a, he identifies as a guy. He's a guy. Um, so I, I, <laughs> yes, I'm, I have a, uh, I'm saying this for a reason. <laughs> yeah. um, I bring that up because I find that people have an issue comprehending the sexuality of gender mm. non-conforming people mm. because all of our words we use to describe them 
assume the gender of the person. So when I say I'm gay, you assume that I'm a male. Yes, sure. And so um, I wonder, I mean, I wonder how you identify, but also are these words for non-binary binary people obsolete, words like bisexual mm-hmm. and, you know, lesbian and gay? Mm-hmm. Yes, we use the word queer cause just because it's such an inclusive catch-all. And if you need to say something, you say that. I love, Which usually gets the job done. I love that word. Me too. And whenever I give a speech, I usually ask the young adults, I say, how do we feel about the word queer? Can I use it? Is it okay? And they all, almost always say yes. I love but I think that. it's polite to ask because it can be a little not pleasant. My impression from the older generations is that it is a gift they're giving the younger generations. <laughs> the yeah, I think so. All right. You can have that word. Fine. Y'all feel so y'all feel so y'all. strongly about it. My South is revealing itself. I love it, but I think that also goes to show, like comparing that to other words that are hate words, it goes to show how far we've come in terms of the LGB people. I'm thinking of like the T word. We can't say it because it's not a trans people have not got there yet. Specifically, you're you're thinking of trans. Trans and transgender. That's what you mean I'm, when you say the T word? No, I'm thinking of tranny. Oh, yeah. Rag right. is another one, but yes. Yeah, and I, I don't use the word tranny because for trans people, they've not got to the place of public acceptance where that word can be thrown around in of a non hate owning it? Yeah, sure. With it, that, so I'm comparing that word to queer. We're queer. We're still fighting for acceptance, but we've got a, mm-hmm. a large ways there compared to where we were tw- 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've really got a lot more work to do for trans people. Yeah. That's so interesting that you bring up tranny because to me, it's still even like just gives me, you know, willies in my body to even say it and hear it. Yeah. Because it's just such a negative connotation and such a like a pejorative toss, you know. But isn't that, that what, a isn't that what you used to think queer was too? Sure. Yeah, you're right. So you think in the future tranny will be used by the community? I... Very controversial thing to say, Jeff. I think that in the future it won't matter. Mm. We need more positive stories in the trans community. Yeah, I agree. And this word used to signify family, and it was formed because it was a word that encompassed all of the like freaks and and uh, gendery people. (laughs) Gendery. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And you know, uh, in this interview that I did with Asia. We were talking about the stereotypes for non-binary people and sort of gender fluid type people. And it's, you know, you're the, and it depends, of course, whether you're trans femme or trans masculine, which we can talk about, you know, what how I use those terms and whatnot. But it's like, and people who are fluid are child molesters or they're murderous or they're the tragic figure that gets killed in the end. And, you know, they're just, ve- it's a very, like, like Hollywood treats a lot of groups, there are very few choices. And so you're talking about this process of broadening the choice so that we have happy stories yeah. as well. We're in desperate need of them. Yeah. And when you mentioned tra- uh, non-binary stereotypes, mm-hmm. my mind thought you were talking about the way that non-binary people present, where the stereotype is somebody, when you look at them, and you like Asia Kate Dillon, uh-huh. you don't know what they were signed at birth. Uh-huh. And you think that's what it means, non-binary. And then you see other people and, sure. and you know, you've got stubble. And it's like, you know what I was what? assigned at birth. <laughs> yeah, you do, you, yeah, to be completely honest, we do. Yeah. And that is um, th- that is a large part of the non-binary experience on... that we don't see. Yes, I was on conservative cable news. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's really a wonderful experience. But you remind me of it because he asked about my genitals. 
the host because it's it's yes relevant somehow to the question <laughs> but anyway on that on national it was actually my it was for the book when the book came out and it was my national tv debut and so it was wow. like yes i have a penis it's on national TV, <laughs> you want to talk about it? <laughs> I have no follow-up questions on that, personally. Is that because people are still figuring out broadly the difference between transgender binary people and non-binary people? And so for mm-hmm. many binary trans people, surgeries are a part of that experience, although not all. I guess, did he have questions about... I think so. I think maybe he just conflated everything all mixed up together and was very confused as a human. So I didn't mind the question. It's not really relevant, you know, in that way to non-binary identity, but eh. I think that it is okay if people do not, quote unquote, get it in terms of being non-binary, comma, as long as they still respect you. Would you disagree with that? No, I absolutely agree with it. And this this person on cable, conservative cable news, did not respect me. But yes, I people that don't get it, I find, because of what you were saying, since I'm one of the very few who is doing this work, who is an adult, because there are, you know, a number of kids on TV who are the gender fluid character, right? But, it, you know, since I'm a spokesperson who's an adult and has an adult life and has a published book and all of that stuff, I it's my job, whether I like it or not, to walk people through what we're talking about. And to also, it doesn't, it's not sad to me, but to walk people through my humanity. Uh, that makes me Ellipses, a bit they said me a bit, Yeah, right. <laughs> that makes me a bit sad, but I also think that somebody has to be that person. And, mm-hmm. and in like just in history sure and god knows i mean it was laverne a while ago on katie kirk still doing it i think yeah oh well when katie kirk messed up right exactly one katie kirk decided to air that interview which is amazing Mm -hmm. and engage but somebody had to make well we can talk about joanne reed too yeah but yeah um somebody had to make that mistake in a huge way Mm -hmm. and someone had to be the first one so that everyone can learn and i i find that my other journalist friends come to me terrified to talk to a trans person because they might mess up because the language is changing so fast. We don't use transsexual anymore. Gender reassignment surgery has been gender confirmation surgery. And also with non-binary people, they slip up and they don't use they, them sometimes. And they're really scared. And Mm -hmm. that's a massive problem that we're going to have to deal with because we can't have journalists not covering us. Well, yes. And which is why I never mind it. I went to that studio, the, the conservative cable news studio, and uh, I was in the studio with the host, and they were touching up my makeup. The host wasn't. The makeup person was touching up my makeup, and, you know, the, the tech people were putting my mic on and stuff like that. And I was chatting up the host, as you usually do, because you sort of test the waters. And, and I found as a non-binary person, I need to check in on certain things. And so I say to the host, oh, I'm sure my manager told you I use they, them pronouns. So to ease the pain, I'm joking. And I say, you want to say things like they wrote an excellent book. They are so attractive. They are the most talented person you've ever seen. Stuff like that. And this host from conservative cable news goes, well, I talk how I talk. So you're going to have to correct me on air. And then the camera started to roll. We were like, hi, (laughs) nice to meet you. (laughs) I'm Jeffrey. 
I find too that people make the argument about like what this host said, uh, he made it about they, them pronouns when mm-hmm. really that is revealing their bias. Well, it was exactly what you were saying at the beginning. I've now become something they need to deal with. I'm no longer a human. I'm this thing forcing them to change their grammar, which yeah. is somehow sacrosanct. <laughs> yeah. But we use she, her for our cars, but we can't change our, yours. Our boat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I have a question about... Oh, so I know what to leave. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> I have a question about raising children in this mm-hmm. gendered world. Yes. I think there's like an ethics question. Name around... everyone Dakota. Alex, only, <laughs> only non-binary names, gender neutral <laughs> names. Uh, like in the ethics around, you know, raising a kid with like they, them pronouns. Like are you, if you have children, like will you assign them a gender based on their genitals? Well, first of all, my partner and I have a plant. And that is the level of family we have decided we'd like to have. Kids are so much work. And you just give your whole life over to kids. My goodness, I admire parents. Not for us at the moment. If I was to have a kid, I don't know what I would do. In true Buddhist fashion, I will commit to being in the moment and seeing what's best in the moment. To me, that would probably look like asking the kid what's going on with them yeah and before they can answer not doing too much to decide things for them Mm -hmm. but that's that's just a general blueprint that i would throw out when i travel the country and talk about these things parents ask me this one specifically a lot and my joke my stock joke is you're going to screw up your kids no matter what you do you might as well screw them up in a way that's comfortable for you <laughs> That's not actually Meaning, a joke. <laughs> not actually a joke. Yeah, you're right. Meaning, you know, the best thing you can do for your kid is your own spiritual work as a parent. Know that there's nothing wrong with you and show your kid that that's something that's possible in the world. That's the best thing you can do with your kids. If they grow up, I mean, they're going to grow up being upset and feeling lonely sometimes and you just your best bet is to be good within yourself. I love that. Thank you for coming in today. <laughs> was that the wrap up? That was it. <laughs> I love you so much. Me Bye. too. Thank you for doing this. Of course. And that's our show. You can find Jeffrey on Twitter or Instagram at the Jeffrey Marsh. You can also find me at Jeff Masters One. That's a great way to connect or recommend a guest. I love hearing your recommendations each week and your feedback, especially when it's nice. (laughs) That's not a joke. If you enjoyed the interview, though, please subscribe on iTunes. Subscribing, ranking us five stars, and leaving a comment is one of the biggest ways you can help our show grow. So big thank you for that. And then we do have a live show coming up next month in New York City. We're announcing that soon, but if you want to be the first to know, you can sign up for our newsletter. That's www.lgbtqpodcast.com lgbtqpodcast.com all right that's it big thank you to kathy too from nancy for the studio space this week to our partners at panoply our old home after buzz tv the elon university in los angeles studio jason mcmurdy and everyone for listening we'll see you next week